You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to Millionaires Unveiled Podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode 79. If you're new to the show or whether you've been listening for a while, we appreciate you tuning into the podcast. On this podcast, we share the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their portfolio allocations. Our hope is to bring these stories to you and help all of us learn from how these millionaires have achieved success. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting the show. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects credit investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. Tell them Clark and Jay sent you. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, please reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com and we'll jump on a call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategy. We partner with a couple different groups that have a long track record of success and very great returns. We have opportunities available now for both accredited and non-accredited investors in different locations throughout the country. On last week's episode, we featured Kevin Bupp. We discussed mobile home park investing as an asset class and various other real estate topics. So if you're interested in that, go check out episode 78 with Kevin Bupp. Also, if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to unveil your allocation and story and help teach others about your investing mindset and your path to success. Next week, we'll have another millionaire interview, but this week we've got an episode with Rich. Rich has a net worth around $2.4 million, mainly in real estate, but some invested in the markets as well, and has a very unique story about his real estate. So without further ado, let's get into the episode with Rich. Rich, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Um, so right now I'm in the military. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an officer in the Air Force. I've been doing that for about 19 years. Um, and also, I've throughout that time, I've been investing in real estate. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to do it, uh, from overseas, which is tricky because I spent most of my career overseas. So kind of over the last 19 years, uh, through trial and error and trying many different things, I've managed to put together a portfolio, which is now up to 20 homes. Uh, kind of one of the interesting things about my portfolio is that, um, they're all paid off and I kind of didn't really start buying these 20 homes until about 2013. I kind of did some other things with the real estate before that. But between 2013 and probably 2017, bought 20 homes uh, all with cash. So that's kind of a kind of a an interesting approach to real estate. They're all in Montgomery, Alabama. So that's kind of me in a in a quick nutshell. And right now I live in uh, South Korea. I spent most of my career overseas, five years in Japan, three years in Germany tears and guams kind of all over the place that's awesome and and what are these homes worth okay uh these homes are roughly worth i'd say on average eighty thousand dollars so you've got 20 homes eighty thousand dollars a piece roughly paid for 
And what does that end up bringing you in a month on a, on passive income on average? Passive income, uh, I'd say I'm bringing in about uh, 400 uh, per house. And and also I'll clarify. I mean, obviously we're getting you guys are getting you, you guys are very technical and you like to kind of know the exactly the real deal. Twenty houses, sixteen of those are held in an LLC. Two of those are held in my Roth IRA, and two of those are held in my wife's Roth IRA. So I guess I, you know, technically I have 16 outside, you know, in, in the kind of what I would call my normal accounts. And then I have uh, four in retirement accounts. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because that is it's obviously you self-directed to buy that real estate. And typically, I would say a majority of people use those types of retirement accounts to invest maybe in the market or or you know, in some sort of bond funds. Why did you decide to utilize some of that and invest in real estate? It, it's kind of funny how we ended up going about doing it. it it's it's kind of a, I guess it's almost silly the way we came about. So so when we had these, I can't remember how many houses we had at the time. It might have been 16 already, but it was a lot. And they're all paid off, right? And we kind of had, had stabilized most of them or we weren't renovating them anymore. And what we realized was like, wow, we have a massive tax bill from these houses because it's just like, it's just pure income. And so we pay, we're paying a lot in taxes. And, and my wife's like, geez, like this is a massive tax bill. Like this sucks. It's like, there's no way to avoid this, is there? And I'm like, no, not really. Like, unless you, unless you own them like in an IRA and then, and then the money that comes in, you know, as rent isn't taxed. And she's kind of like, really? Like, how does that work? And then I, I kind of explained it to her. And she's like, well, we should try that. Like, we should buy some houses in our IRA. And I kind of thought about it. And I said, well, you know, I'm not, not sure that's, not sure that's what I want to do. But I, I kind of figured, well, I have like a blog and, you know, maybe I could like buy these in my IRA and I could blog about it and kind of give people the pros and the cons. And so ultimately, we ended up uh, deciding to do it. Awesome. So, so again, for our listeners, if you haven't heard of that, it's a self-directed IRA and, and usually, Rich, it's a nominal fee to do so, right? Usually as a percentage of, of what you've invested in something else. So I don't, I don't know what yours is, but usually it's a couple thousand dollars of fees is what yeah, I've been familiar with. Yeah. It, it, it isn't, I wouldn't say it's a couple thousand in fees. The, the fees aren't really that bad. And of course, my houses aren't very expensive, right? My houses are like, you know, Seventy, eighty thousand dollar houses. So, I think when you buy a house, you spend a couple hundred dollars to buy that house in the in the IRA. You know, there's like there's kind of lots of small fees. Like there's like a you know twenty dollar you know quarterly fee, and there's like a you know fifteen dollar fee for like getting a statement. There's kind of there's a lot of sort of small nickel and dime fees, but kind of like overall, it's just not very expensive, and and it wasn't very bad. Awesome. So to build that up, you obviously put money in your IRA or 401k uh, through the military right before buying those houses. Yeah. So, well, not necessarily through the military. Well, yeah, I mean, it came from my military salary, but I had, uh, you know, a, a what you would call traditional Roth IRA at my bank, which was USAA. And that's where I held my Roth IRA. And I had just been doing that since, I think, since 1999. Just kind of maxing that out each year, and I think it was always in S and P 500. Like that was, I, I was just one. Of, I'm one of those index fund investors who keeps life very easy. Investing in that, and then when it was time to move it to a um, self-directed IRA where I could invest in real estate, I just needed to sell that Roth IRA into cash, and then as cash transferred over to the self-directed IRA. 
and then the IRA was able to buy the real estate. And do you still invest in the market or is it all in real estate? So I have a TSP. Um, if you're from a, and, and for, for your listeners, TSP thrift savings plan is the military's version of the 401k. I have that. I've been maxing that out for quite some time. And I have all of that is invested in the market and it's all invested in. They have something. They're actually kind of limited in what you can invest in, but they have something like an S&P 500 index and they have like a small cap index and an international index and like um, a bond index. And that's kind of how I let you invest. But that's how I'm invested in the market. And I th- and that's and then I have a, about 20,000 that's still in a traditional brokerage account. So not very much. How much do you carry in cash? At the moment, I'm uh, looking right here. So at the moment, I have... A hundred thousand in cash, and that's kind of because that's just like the money that's been rolling in from rent each month into my LLC account. And it's not that I normally feel like I need that much cash. It's this that it's just that I've kind of come out of buy mode, and I kind of and I think we'll talk about this later as we were talking about earlier. But I've kind of made the decision that I'm not going to just keep buying single family homes for cash. Um, but I'm considering moving into multifamily and, put, and, and, and using leverage in the future. My cash is kind of waiting for the next deal. Uh, so I have a hundred thousand sitting in cash and I currently have uh, 50,000, uh, invested, uh, with a friend, uh, for about a year who kind of used it as, I guess you could say a hard money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that's, that's kind of what's sitting around in, I guess you could say liquid right now. Yeah, I think it's an interesting topic for people to know how much to to hold in cash and then, you know, when to when to send it out or deploy it. But Rich, pretty crazy, right? So you have 20 single family homes, it's about 400 on average, let's call it a house. It's $8,000 a month and and almost $100,000 a, a year in passive income. So walk us through these purchases. Was this like a a once a year kind of thing for 20 years or how did it all get going? Yeah, so I moved to Montgomery, Alabama in 2013 for a military school. And it was just, I was just going to be in Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months and wasn't excited about going there, had no intention of buying anything. But once I got there and I ran into another military member who was investing and he explained to me what he was doing. He already owned four homes. He paid cash for them. Like, you know, he was buying them super cheap and getting these ridiculous rents on them. And I was kind of like, you got to be kidding me because because I had a rental in D.C. at the time and uh, my rental in D.C. wasn't doing very well. Like it just didn't make very much money. The ROI was very poor on it. And when I saw his numbers, I'm like, I got to start doing this. So I, I dived in and I said, well, can you show me what you're doing here in Montgomery? And so in that 10 months, I bought uh, six houses. You know, I bought six houses with cash. It was actually five in cash and one I used a loan on. I didn't even need to use the loan. I actually had the cash. I just wanted to try using the loan. Actually, it's pretty hard to use a loan on a property that costs, um, I think that property costed 45000 It's actually hard to get a loan for 45000 Banks don't want to do it, but, but I was able to do it. So um, I kind of bought six very quickly. And, I, and, and the first six that I bought in 2013, it was just, a, it was just good timing, kind of much cheaper than the, the, the houses I've bought since then because it was, it was like the right time to buy, you know, and maybe not as many people had caught on to the fact that that was a hot market and and that uh, the price was right and it was just you know sometimes it's just timing in certain markets. Then I moved away and I moved to um, 
Germany for the next three years. And I needed more cash, but I owned my house in D.C. outright. So I sold it, sold that house. Then I was sitting on a bunch of cash. And so basically, I spent the next two and a half, three years buying houses as fast as I could. As fast as I could find good ones, I'd just keep buying them. And so essentially, I went from you know six to 16. And then along that way as well, I also dipped into our IRAs to buy four more. And that's kind of how it all happened. It kept me very, very busy for a few years. Wow. So initially, I mean, even more crazy, right? That you started in 2013. So it's been about five or six years. So that's four houses a year. So initially to buy those five houses in the first year, you just had a bunch of cash saved up? I did. Yeah. I, I had a bunch. I had that. I mean, I've been flipping at one point in my career, I was flipping houses and I was flipping houses in with a partner in DC in Alexandria, Virginia. And when I was flipping houses in DC, I needed, you needed cash for the down payments. And I was, I was using a loans to flip houses, but you needed like an $80,000, uh, you know, down payment for these, for these houses, sometimes higher. Well, the houses that I was buying in Montgomery, Alabama, they were like cheaper than half the price of a down payment in Alexandria, Virginia. So paying cash for the houses seemed you know, almost intuitive. Like these houses are so cheap. Why would I even bother financing them? The first house I bought was $30,000. The next few were, you know, 40,000, 45,000. To me, I'm just not going to bother getting a loan, you know, for, for, for that amount of money. Uh, but another thing I kind of want to talk about too, and I don't know if, I think you've had some of these uh, people on your show as well, but I'm kind of one of those like, you know, fire people, financial independence, retire early. I'm like the very sort of frugal, you know, like somebody who's always saving and, and trying to, you know, say I'm very conservative and I'm, you know, saving and trying to invest well, you know, living below my means, not taking the big vacations, you know, don't have new cars, don't have like nice furniture. And, and I've always been, me and my wife have always been like the big, big savers and the big, big investors. And to, when we got to the 13 year part of my career, I just, I had the cash. I mean, I just had that kind of cash sitting around and I was able to do that. It's awesome that you didn't take out any uh, debt as well. Do you regret doing that at all? Do you feel like you could have bought more or are you happy with the peace of mind doing cash only? I think both. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I have some regret. I, I think that you know, I, I have a, a blog. It's called richonmoney.com and I kind of blog about what I'm doing with real estate there. And there was a time early in my blog where I wanted to write a blog post about how the smartest way to invest is to do it all cash. Like that's like just the smartest way to do it. But before I wrote that post, I wanted to do a lot of research. And so I did a lot of research, you know, and I, I like, uh, read a lot of other blog posts and I did a lot of research and I crunched numbers and I used calculators. And what I found out was, uh, I couldn't prove it. Like you can't prove that investing with cash is the smartest <laughs> way to invest in real estate. It's not. If you use leverage in a responsible way uh, over a long period of time, you're going to come out way ahead, you know, versus using cash. Uh, that's just the bottom line. So I could be a lot further along now and certainly a lot further along in the future had I been using leverage, you know, to, to do all of this stuff. That being said, there is an amazing peace of mind that you just can't put a price on with having all of your real estate paid off and you know, with not having any mortgages, I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, should you have another 
2008 style event or even one that's worse. Um, if I had 20 houses that were mortgaged, you know, and, and even if uh, they were only 50% mortgaged or 40% mortgaged in a 2008 style event, you could still lose those houses. You could lose them all to foreclosure. But if they're paid off, you would not. You would not lose them to foreclosure. You would simply reduce your cash flow. It would be reduced and it would probably annoy me. And I'd probably be like, oh, that sucks. I'm making a little bit less money. And so that kind of peace of mind, you know, is something that you can't really put a price on. And so that's just a trade-off that you have to think about. Hmm. And did you manage these at all when you were living in Alabama or were they all, did you always hire the management out? The management is, uh, for me, is a very, uh, the, the way that I handled it's very interesting. I never, ever, ever want to manage real estate. I, I, I managed my, like my one property that I owned in DC or kind of tried to. Um, and that's, of course, doable. As long as you like, you know, I knew the guy across the street and I kind of like knew a plumber and I knew an HVAC guy. But once you got like a, you know, three or four and, you, and, and also I think in a, in a sort of more blue collar, mid to lower income area and I'm outside the country, I don't, I don't want to try. You know, it gets a lot more, it gets a lot trickier. Um, in Montgomery, Alabama, my houses have a higher turnover than they did in, uh, Alexander, Virginia. So I used a management company. I even used a management company when I lived there because I wanted to make sure that I could find a management company that I trusted, get to know them, and put systems in place that I could see were working before I moved away mm. so that I knew it w would be working while I was living all over the world. And, and to sort of add to that, I even set it up so that my management company was the one that was um, managing my rehabs when I bought new properties. And I say new properties, new to me. I was buying properties that, you know, were in bad shape and that needed a lot of work. So they were taking those properties and organizing the rehab on them to get them rent, to get them, you know, move-in ready. And they were just charging me a fee for doing that work. And I was having my property management company handle that for me. I wouldn't have been able to, you know, grow myself from Germany without having somebody to do that for me. And for me, it was my management company. Well, that's great. How many hours a week do you think you spend on these? When I'm not buying, it's certainly less than a, an hour a month. Wow. Certainly. Um, when we're buying, then, you know, like, you know, we're like looking, looking on Zillow and, but I mean, it's, to, to us, it's like, it's fun. I mean, it's like we have a blast looking for deals. Sure. Um, but I mean, for the past two years, it is less than an hour a month and it's, it's virtually no work. And, um, I mean, I would say that there were, in the earlier years, I think you have to, you know, when, when, when the management company isn't quite where they need to be yet, you're managing the management company. You know, if you're not managing it yourself, the management company isn't always a magic solution to your problems. You have to find a very good management company. They have to be trustworthy. And even when they are, it takes a while so you've got them to where, you know, you need them to be and where they're kind of doing the things that you need them to do. And the reports you're getting are in the format that you need them and what they're doing makes sense to you. So that was work earlier on in our relationship to uh, fine tune everything so that they could, you know, act uh, in, in, in the way that I wanted them to act. And I could be totally hands off. But it's been that way for a few years now. And it, and it truly is pretty much hands-off now. 
That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the the economics of of these homes. Are you buying like a three bedroom, two bath or three one? And when you're trying to find these deals, how do you kind of go about doing that? Did you hire an agent? Are you looking on Zillow and and contacting the listing agent? Kind of what's been your approach? So at first, early on, I really relied on my property manager as being an area expert because my property manager owned like 400 other properties in the area. And like they owned a lot of properties that didn't rent well and properties that rented easily. And so I told them, what kind of properties do you want me to buy? What kind of properties do you want me to avoid? And they told me unequivocally, only buy three bedroom, two bath or four bedroom, two bath. Never buy one bath. We always have problems renting out our, our three bedroom, one baths. And so I own nothing but three bedroom, two bath and four bedroom, two bath. And that's just based on their input uh, and just based on the fact that those always rent before the one baths. Another thing that I've always done is I've always used the same real estate agent ever since I started. I have one real estate agent that has bought all 20 houses for me. They know everything that I want and they know this uh, management company very well. In fact, I believe the management company introduced me to them and I believe that they bought all the houses for the management company's portfolio originally. So my, my, my real estate agent works very closely with the managing company. When I tell my real estate agent that I want them to look at a house, first of all, I find everything on Zillow. Zillow and Trulia are almost just as good as the MLS. They ha- their information is, you know, 90, 98% accurate. I send my real estate agent out to look at something that I, that, that me and my wife find on Trulia, Trulia or Zillow. They look at it. It's a possibility. I then have somebody from my management company, property management company, go look at it. They have to be okay with it. Sometimes they'll tell me, this is a bad floor plan or, this street's not very good. Like one street over, we have no problem. But on this street, like we just seem to have a problem we don't, and we don't like it. Like sometimes it'll be that nuanced. So I, so I get the blessing of my property manager. Then I make an offer on the property. So that, that's kind of how I've done it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of turned, it turned into an assembly line. And, you know, there were times where I, I bought two or three houses in the same month. And so we, we, we got pretty good at it. That's awesome. So you, you shared with us a little bit before the show that you're kind of done buying, especially maybe in, in a single family space. Why have you kind of made that decision and kind of what are you looking to do next? I think I realized that I found something pretty good with the money that I was making in, in these properties. In 2013, when I bought the first six, I think I bought them at a very cheap price. If you kind of, you know, like, like you know, say buy, buying a house for 45000 and then like renting it out for 900 a month. That's a, that's a really good price. And, but, but I paid cash for them. And, and so I did that. Uh, but certainly I, as I kept doing this, the prices kept going up, but the rents were going up slower. So I was making less money, but I was sort of like, we had this idea like, well, if we had 40 houses, we, we will make this much money. And if we have 60, we'll make this much money and 80 will make this much money. But I think when we got to 20, we're kind of like, ah, I don't know because I've always been excited about multifamily and I feel like multifamily, first of all, I want to scale faster and I would love it if I could just purchase one property and double my, you know, and double my doors from 20 to 40. I would love that. Secondly, I would love it if I could do that with leverage, you know, I don't have to use all of my net worth, you know, to purchase 20 more properties, but use just a small piece of it to do so. I would also love it if I could get to 100 units without using all of my net worth. I guess I've become sold on the benefits of multifamily properties. 
Also, I believe that multifamily properties might be a little more recession proof. And I, and I kind of, I'm not totally sold on this, but a lot of people believe that we might be heading into another recession with real estate sometime. And some people have been saying this since like 2015. So obviously people have been saying it for a while now. And I've, I've definitely heard the argument that uh, multifamily real estate fared better than single family homes uh, through the last recession. So those are some of my reasons for wanting to go into multifamily. Another another is also sort of, it seems like the next evolution. I love real estate and it just seems like the next evolution of you know me growing as a real estate investor. Yeah. Would you potentially sell off any of your single family homes to, to move into multifamily or even maybe put, put some leverage on, on a portfolio of them to do so? Yes, I would. Um, I don't have a plan to sell any of them, but uh, I did actually go through the trouble of like getting appraisals so that I would be able to take a portfolio loan if I need to. There was there was a time where I thought I potentially uh, had a, had a deal on a, a multifamily. You know, was it was a good possibility in Montgomery, Alabama? I ended up passing on that deal. If need be, I would do that. Yes. Now I may also qualify without needing to do that as well. Um, we'll see, but. I would do that. Yeah, I would consider that at this point. So, Rich, there's, you know, there's some people in the fire community that at 100,000 a year would say, I'm done, right? There's yeah. several people that say, hey, <laughs> 60, 70, 80,000, that's enough. And, and once I get to that point of passive income, right, that's the goal, then I'll, I'll quit my job and that's what I'll do. Yeah. But you don't, you don't seem like that's your number. Do you have a number or are you kind of just taking it as you go? So I, I love the fire community and I, and, uh, I'm, I'm very good friends with a lot of those people, but I don't know that it's so much. I think it's more about loving the real estate and it's more about thinking of it as a challenge, thinking of it as a game, wanting to see how far I can take this real estate thing. I'm not done. Uh, I wouldn't know what to do. I mean, there was a time a couple of years ago or, you know, when I've been you know, probably the 15, 16 year point of my career where I realized, wow. I have enough money to stop working for the rest of my life. And that felt very good. And it kind of relieved a lot of stress for a couple of years. But then a little bit later, then you kind of like, I could stop working, but like, why should I? Why should I stop working? I also could keep going. And I think it's, I think in the, in the fire community, though, there's this idea that you could stop working at a certain number. But I think there's also this, this idea of you retire from the job that you have to do. And then you get to do the job that you want to do for the rest of your life. And I think I'm more of that type of fire person. Yeah. And I call myself a fat fire person too, which is like, <laughs> I kind of want like the, the fat fire retirement where it's a big number and, 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 a, and, a, and a, uh, a luxurious retirement. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe instead of retirement, it's, it's refocusing right on something else or spending yeah. the time exactly how you want to spend it. Yeah, it is. Yep. So. How does somebody get started? Should, should they buy a house in, in their area? Does it matter if it's in their area? Should they stick to that fifty to $100,000 price range, three bed, two bath? I think, I think a lot of that's very psychological. I mean, I don't think you need to start small or anything. It's probably just what you can, what you, what you, what you can stomach and, and what you financially can get away with. But I would argue that you, um, location is important. And I think that the first thing, the most important thing is it's obviously the best if you can do it like where you're living now. That would be best. And obviously that was my biggest challenge throughout my whole career and it just didn't work for me. But it's best if you can do it where you're living now. That would be the best thing. Probably second best is like, you know, where a place that you know very well 
and you have like trusted people on the ground, like your parents or like your business partner or like very good friends. And then maybe like third best, you, you know, this place that you're like planning on retiring or planning on moving next, or it's a place that you like really want to live. But I, I think this idea that you're, you're living in California and that you'll kind of like just pick anywhere in the country kind of randomly, like I'll pick anywhere, just give me somewhere to invest. I'll invest there. That can be kind of tricky. Um, if you're going to be involved, that, that can be kind of tricky. I think that you have, it's kind of important that you under, and to me, it's important that you understand something about that area, that you get there, that you meet property managers, that you meet real estate agents, that you understand something about the neighborhoods. I believe that all of that's important. And so that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. So we've interviewed a couple of people on this show. And, and of course, there are others that are, are big investors in multifamily. And, and some say starting in single family, you know, was a lot of work for them. It was a headache. And, they found it not to be worth it. Have you, you know, obviously you ha it hasn't been the case for you or you wouldn't have 20 single family rentals, but what are some <laughs> of the problems that you've encountered? Have there been big issues with your rentals? I would say yes. Um, there, there have been some, uh, I mean, to me, they were, to me, they're big issues, but luckily big issues on houses that are relatively inexpensive. I think that the things that happened to me could have happened on more expensive houses or could have happened on multifamilies and it would have been more stressful. But I think I would say to that, I would say that if you want to get into real estate, I think it's smart to house hack or to start with a, you know, fourplex, right? A three or fourplex that, you know, you could get away with doing residentially and see if that cash flows for you. See if that goes smoothly enough. See if it goes well. And if it goes well for, uh, you know, six months or a year and it's working for you, then try to put together something a little bit bigger if you're still excited about this. And I think that would be my recommendation uh, for somebody that's getting started. And I think I'd, I'd skip multifamilies. I mean, I'm sorry, I'd skip single families. I mean, for me, it's kind of what I fell into and it's the only thing that I understood at the time, especially somebody who doesn't know anything about construction and, and, and real estate. I just, it's what I, it's what I could handle. But, uh, I could get behind skipping it and, and going to uh, multifamily. Awesome. So do you have, I know you don't have any debt on these single families. Do you have any other debt? I have no debt. Awesome. Good for you. Good for you. So before we wrap up here, I just want to end with some rapid fire questions. So most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think it was during like high school and I, and I think it was like, you know, $200 pair, $250 pair of jeans. <laughs> and I feel pretty stupid about it. I think they yeah, were called. Uh, I think they were called Jabot jeans. Is that, I don't know if that rings a bell for anybody. Jabot. Yeah. That's that's what I made the mistake too. Most <laughs> expensive shoes. Oh gosh, I don't know that I've ever spent too much. Maybe dress shoes, like you know, two hundred bucks. I don't feel too bad about it. Okay, most expensive car. Not very much. Less than twenty fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand. Okay. Nope. Sorry, nothing. Okay, most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? You know, I, I, when I was in Japan, uh, I think this was like featured in a movie that like Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson were in. But like I went to the Park Hyatt in Shinjuku and like ordered this like, you know, burger and fries at, on the top floor of a hotel. And it was like it was like two hundred dollars. They were very good fries. I think I think they used uh, <laughs> truffle, <laughs> truffle sauce or something. They better be right? truffle oil. Truffle oil. Hundred dollar yeah. French fry. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, what item or items or experiences are, are more worth spending the money on to you? Traveling? I th- to me, I think traveling is worth the money, and I think that um, just experiences in life. I really think experiences are important. I've been to many uh, – a lot of for me, a lot of it has to do with being in the military. So I've had the chance to go all over the world, and uh, it's worth the money to get out and see the world and travel. But I would never spend money on, you know, expensive cars or expensive, like, I don't know, luggage or like art or uh, jewelry or, uh, and I don't like spending lots of money on like eating out. I mean, eating out at expensive restaurants, that seems like a waste to me. Gotcha. How many, just, if you know, how many countries have you been to? I have no idea, but it's a lot. Um, I've been to many countries in Asia many countries in Europe. I've lived in a decent amount of countries just being in the military. I don't know. I, I should count them. 30? 30? It's a guess. It's oh. yeah, a good number. Uh, if you remember, what, what were your, your high school and college GPA? High school GPA, 2.49. College GPA, probably like 3.5. Okay. What's your predicted retirement age and, and net worth, if you had to guess now? My predicted retirement age i'm going to retire from the military uh next year and that will be me at 45 years old and uh my net worth will be you know 2.4 goodness in real estate i have no i have no idea how far i'll take things but uh hopefully pretty far okay how much do you spend a year your family oh 40,000 maybe Okay. Any uh, favorite books or tools or websites that have helped you learn and grow your net worth? Oh, why do I always have to Google this? The Writer of the Black Swan. Uh, And he has several books, but um, The Black Swan is one of my favorite books. And he just, um, he writes about kind of like improbability. uh, I'm sorry, Nassim Taleb is his name. And The Black Swan is one of his books, but he's got several. He kind of writes about how randomness and probability are misunderstood. And I think one of his, one of his biggest lessons are probably, um, people on, a lot of people on Wall Street think that they understand the market, think that they can, you know, know which way things are going, think that they understand investments like nobody does. It's all a big scam. But I think in, in reading most of his books probably taught me more about money than anything else has. And I don't hear people talk about his books very much. And so uh, he's kind of one of my favorite uh, favorite authors. And whenever anybody asks, that's what I like to bring up. Awesome, good to know. And and last question is: as much as you're comfortable, what's been your range of income through your working life? You know, it's no secret. There's like a pay chart for the military, and I'm I'm a I'm a military officer in the Air Force. I think it started out at like two thousand a year, and it's probably up to about. 9,000. I'm sorry, 2,000 a month. It's probably up to about 9,000 a month now. That's like what the military pays an officer at the, towards the end of his career as a lieutenant colonel. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's plenty. I'm able to save a, a large, a large portion of that. And uh, my wife ha- has not worked. So, Rich, just to wrap up here, what do you advise somebody who's in their 20s or early 20s just getting started on their financial journey and maybe even shed some light on maybe a mistake or two that you've made over the course of, of your journey. I think one of the most important things for me, you know, it hasn't been like 
how smart I was with real estate. Like that's not what got me to the net worth that I'm at now. It had a lot more to do with how much I saved or saved and invested early on in my career, how much I put aside and didn't spend, uh, you know, early on, how much I put in, you know, IRA and TSP and, and normal investment accounts when I was younger. I really think that that's like uh, the, the key to getting started off well. I mean, you can either do that or you can invest in real estate, but do it early. Do it. If you're in your 20s and you're listening to this show, invest in real estate early. But I think on top of that, it's being smart with your money. I, I hear people like start investing in real estate and they're investing in real estate like even though they have bad credit, right? And even, even though they're in a poor financial situation and even though they make poor financial, they make poor financial decisions. I don't believe in that. You have to invest in real estate from a financial position of strength. I kind of, I believe in living frugally, saving as much as you can. And, and investing as much as you can and doing that. The younger you do that, the more the sort of power, the power of, you know, um, the, the earlier you start, it just, the time, you know, sort of it snowballs and it snowballs. And then, you know, you're 35, you're 40 and you're kind of like, wow, I, I can't, I can't believe this is where I am now. So starting early is the key. If you're in your twenties and you think you're too young to do real estate, you're crazy. Like buy a house right now, buy a house this year. Do so responsibly, do, do so the right way, but but buy one now. That'd be my advice. Just, just a follow-up to that, do you know what your savings rate has been roughly over the years? I mean, I it gets it all I mean it's always it's always getting higher and higher, especially as, you know, my rental, you know, income has gotten so much larger to the point where all of my income and a lot of my rental income is all savings. You know, all of my work income and a lot of my rental income is essentially all savings now. But, um, you know, early on in my career, very early on, 25, 30%, mid career, 60%, 70%. You need to, you know, you need to get to, I, I think you gotta, I think you need to get yourself to 50% pretty fast. And if that's like an impossibility with, with the way life's going right now, then you gotta figure something out. You gotta downsize, you gotta move. You got to find a new job. You got to find a side hustle, you know, because um, you got to have a high savings rate or, or all of this stuff will never work. Yeah. And, and Rich, you got one more question, just given that, that you've lived abroad so, so much. Have you ran into any tax issues or do you have any strategies that might be helpful for people that, that do want to live abroad, but maybe invest in the United States? No, I mean, living abroad in the military does not present any unique tax issues like that nothing's come up for me the the issue would be more if i was investing in something overseas you know like investing in foreign real estate yeah. or investing in a foreign business or working for a foreign business and like being paid you know in you know japanese yuan or or, or you know or paid in a foreign currency and you know subject to like taxes in two different countries so that's just never come up for me. One of the things about being in the military that's been helpful for me, there's a cost of living allowance given to you in the military when you're overseas. And when I was in Japan, they pay you extra money because the cost of living is so high in Japan. So they paid me like, at times they were paying me an extra 2000 a month just because I was living in Japan. And they're like, well, it's expensive to live in Japan. Here's an extra 2000 a month. 
That was all savings for me. I lived in Japan for five years, making an extra 2000 a month just because I lived in Japan. They also paid me extra money for speaking foreign languages. I made an extra $1,000 a month just because I spoke two foreign languages. So, you know, the military gave some additional ways for me to make extra income. Also, when I was um, on business trips, we call them TDYs, but when you're on business trips, the military actually gives you quite a bit of money to pay for your food and incidental expenses. So I'd go on trips for two, three, four, five, six weeks, and I'd be getting like 100 or $150 a day. And you don't spend all that money. You might spend none of that money. All your meals might be provided. And those are just ways that I've made a lot of extra money in the military. So military is still a great career route per, per rich, right? <laughs> it has been for me. Uh, I, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, I've loved it. That's awesome. Where can people find you or get a hold of you? Um, my website is www.richonmoney.com. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email, ask me a question. This is just my personal email address. Richcary, R-I-C-H-C-A-R-E-Y, richcary at gmail.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. That's awesome. Rich, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, you guys. This was great. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.